Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and it is my pleasure to say that today we are joined by Molly Hooper. She is a CBS political contributor, a longtime Capitol Hill reporter, the host of the podcast Article One, and we have been on air together, and I'm so happy that I can finally get you on the podcast and get some of your political knowledge for our listeners. So thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me. (laughs) I can't wait to say that when you come and talk to me on mine. (laughs) We're doing a podcast trade later. So let's start with the, uh, well, there's so much political news of the week, but something that I really, when I was watching it, I was thinking, what is Molly thinking? And that is President Biden's marathon press conference that happened this week. It was I think the longest presidential press conference ever. He touched on a lot of different topics. He held it, I think, because it's been a year. Uh, You know, in some ways it feels like 10, in some ways it feels like a week. And I think in large part, this is defensive. He had to, you know, explain away polling numbers, explain what he's doing and why he isn't doing more. So if I could just ask, you know, right off the bat, what were your big takeaways from that press conference? Well, well, like you said, Jessica, there was so much to that press conference and so much. The first thing I thought was he needs to do more press conferences on a regular basis. The reason it was partially that long is number one, because he never does them ever. And that's a huge contrast with his predecessor who used to talk to the press like every day. And so I think that this is something that reporters wanted and they were really pushing him to stay and answer questions. And so the first thing I was thinking was, I hope the White House starts making him more available in settings like this so that he doesn't have to go for two hours. The second thing I was thinking is, oh, this takes me back to his Senate days. As somebody who has covered the Senate for a long time, it was very reminiscent of a filibuster. (laughs) You know, senators keep talking and talking and talking and talking and talking. And I think that his style was very much more Capitol Hill than it was, to me at least, presidential, because on a number of answers, he was wavering on key issues. I mean, like what's going on in Russia, Ukraine? Oh, we're against the incursions, but hey, a small incursion's not bad. You can't vacillate like that if the president wants to put forward this strong posture, he needs to be pretty definite in his answers. And I think that he was challenged a lot. And again, he was giving sort of contrasting answers. The other point of that, that um, I took away was in terms of being definitive on his policies, when he said that he could divide up the Build Back Better plan, I thought, but I mean, as somebody who knows the Senate, if he wants to pass that nearly one point seven trillion dollar bill he only has one stab at the apple whatever you want to say and that's because of the way that the democrats in the senate will need to pass it and so you can't really divide it up because whatever gets divided up is the only thing that's going to pass and so i wasn't quite sure how that was going to play out i thought that he would have had a more clear picture in terms of his direction forward with his policy agenda. And I, I'm i not sure that that was as effective as he would have liked it to be. I like the idea of politics being a stab at the apple. I actually think that might be the most accurate way of describing <laughs> what was happening. So let's take another step back. He was on that stage for a long time. You pointed out, I think, something that I didn't really key into, but is so important, which is maybe he sounded more like a senator than a president, 
But do you think that he helped to combat the idea that he's not up to the task mentally or physically? Do you think people walked away from that thinking, yeah, he was able to speak in some depth on a wide range of topics? Or do you think it really didn't do anything for that particular criticism? I don't think it did anything for that particular criticism. And the reason that I say that, and this is my initial response to your to your question, I, I mean, I, somebody can prove me wrong, but my initial takeaway was he kept waffling on major issues and not giving focused, direct answers, the kind that you want to give to project a strong, confident, mentally agile, facile, you know, somebody who's there who's got it together and who's in control. And because the press conference was so long, to his credit, it was very long. But what happens when you go too long in something like that? All of a sudden, you have to take a break. These things are not easy for people who are at the top of their game. Two-hour press conferences are not easy. And so I just think that he went on too long and wandered off onto certain topics or areas that I don't think he necessarily wanted to. And then he had to backtrack afterwards, especially when it came to the Ukraine answer and Russia's potential incursion. And the president kind of said something to the effect of, well, a small one's not as big of a problem. But I mean, even giving that signal to the world, it's not good. And so I don't think that he did himself a lot of favors. And I think that in addition he didn't win over a lot of Democrats because of saying that he was going to break up the Build Back Better or other issues that he was discussing. I don't think that they thought that was a very good performance. Yeah. So maybe it's not going to change the poll numbers, which at this point don't look fantastic for him if the election were held today. Of course, there's, you know, we don't know who he'd run against, but there's a lot of, I think, question marks over his ability maybe to win re-election. Were there some moments where you thought, okay, that was a really solid exchange or he's going to really combat critics who say X, Y, Z? I mean, we've we've talked in, I think, fairly about some of the things that he did wrong, but were there moments where you thought, you know, he really hit it out of the park on that particular answer or was it all just kind of in between waffling and middling? <laughs> No, I think I think that you know, waffling and middling. See, and yeah. I, I'm one of these reporters that looks for you know interesting exchanges with reporters. I don't necessarily care for the feisty one-on-ones where you don't really get an answer to your question. But there were some times where I think that the president did give a solid answer. It's just not necessarily the one that he set out to give. And, I, and I'm sorry that I don't have the press conference in front of me, but. When it came to, I think it was the schools and vaccines and issues around that, he was a little bit more, I think eventually he said, you know, we're just going to have to wait a little while that the science is catching up. And I mean, he was honest about that. But again, that's not necessarily what people, or at least the people that I talked to came away from that press conference as seeing. What they saw was, you know, some sort of confusing answers, not that he was confused, but just that the message was kind of confused and and confusing. And that didn't do him a lot of favors. I was surprised that he didn't really make a point of noting how much he has accomplished 
you know, in his first year. And I'm sure we're going to get into this in a little bit, but in terms of the infrastructure bill, that was huge. I think that Republicans were particularly taken back, especially in the Senate, because it was Republicans who helped him pass that measure with more than 10 votes in favor of it and really pushed that on the House side as well. They were the ones getting some Republicans in the House conference to vote for this measure. And I thought that he could have really used that opportunity to unite more. There's so much division going on in the country. And I think that maybe the newspapers can sell their digital news articles and whatever it is, and you got the clickbait, whatever that is. Uh, I know what that is, but you know, I'm just sort of making a joke about it. But really, people want to know that government is working together and getting something done. And all the stories tend to be showing how divided Congresses and the White House and in inter-party divisions. And really, there are things that are happening. The president, I think, is somebody who could have highlighted that a little bit better and really noted that he worked with Republicans to get some of those things done. But he didn't. He didn't make that point in the press conference. And I think that that's another issue going into that press conference was, who is my audience here? Who do I want to appeal to? Do I want to appeal to the progressives? in the party? Do I want to appeal to the middle? Who is my audience? And I don't think that the president really had a firm grasp on who he was talking to. And that's why I think one of the other reasons you came away from this with a bit of a confused message. And that, that was a little frustrating because he could have highlighted some really positive things that he was able to accomplish in his first year, but he didn't. So I think that brings us exactly to where we should go next, which is maybe moving off of the press conference and thinking about what were your, in your view, what were the biggest achievements? What are the things that if you were advising him, you would have wanted to hear him say like, okay, look, of course, none of us are happy with X, Y, Z. We can't get everything, but look at what I did. What do you think are, if we look back, what are his crowning achievements so far? Well, I mean, all you have to do is look at the infrastructure bill. I mean, I feel like almost every week a different congressperson is putting out how many millions of dollars they were able to bring back to their respective districts and or states to show that bridges are going to be built, roads are going to be repaired, and broadband access is going out to the masses, especially at a time when people are still working from home and school kids still sometimes have classes from home, and they need to be able to depend on reliable broadband. This is something that the president was able to work with Republicans on and they were able to get it done. I would have highlighted the pandemic bill that he was able to pass in the beginning of his his presidency in the first few months. That was a lot of money that went out to help people and it's something that Democrats were trying to build on with the Build Back Better, but you know, it still is a point to be highlighted. And there are a number of other issues. I believe that there is a crime bill in the mix and other smaller items of an ALS research bill that had been worked on for I don't know how many years, but made it to the president's desk. And again, that might have been a smaller achievement, but it's still an achievement. And at a time when Washington feels like, again, it is so divided and nobody can get anything done, there are small victories happening. It's just that because of the environment and the taste for confrontational headlines and, and exciting... <laughs> intrigue. We don't hear about them as much, but it's not to say that there is not bipartisan work getting done. And again, 
if his goal was to build up support and to build up some sort of, you know, positivity with, say, independent voters and more middle of the road type voters, moderates, I really want to hear how he is able to get these things done. And I'm not hearing that as much. Well, and that probably brings us to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is, you know, we've kind of looked back, we've looked back at the press conference, we've looked back at maybe what he should have said. And I think you laid it out really well that, you know, in a time of such deep division, here are the things that I have done. And and I would add to that really changing the federal judiciary. He's made that a priority, like, frankly, every president should. And we've seen in so many ways that um, who's on the federal bench really does affect our daily lives. And I think that kind of pivots us to the next thing, which is what can he do in the lead up to the midterm? So you talked a little bit about, you know, he said, well, we can break up the build back better, but that there's really one bite slash stab at the apple on that. What do you think that he's going to be focused on? We've seen it looks like, you know, voting rights legislation. I just don't see a path forward as much as it's desperately important and needed to provide a federal safety valve here. Do you see a couple of things that he can do in the next 10 months or so? Well, first of all, he has to pass the spending bills that'll keep the government operating for the next year. And that has to happen before February 18th, and it should happen. And when Congress does pass those, they're likely going to add, as they often do, on those must-pass bills, add some sweeteners, so to speak. Yeah. Well, not, (laughs) you know, a little sweetener here and there, uh, as long as it's not too sugary. Just kidding. (laughs) So I think that there's a chance to get some sort of reforms into the mix through the funding bills. And that might include additional pandemic relief, especially for restaurants and theaters and, you know, who have been very hard hit by this latest wave of Omicron. Possibly, you know, that's a vehicle that we can see some of that aid going out. But in terms of other legislation that we could see get to his desk, possibly on the voting reform aspect, there is a movement it's slowly building to reform the electoral college count of, I think it was 1877. This happened after the 1876 presidential election that really was stolen, but that's a story for a whole different day. I mean, talk about Democrats being upset. Sam Tilden was not very happy. He was the presidential (laughs) nominee and he, he was robbed, but that's again, a different story for a different day. I think that the role that the vice president plays in the electoral college and the counting of the votes, that has the potential to be changed. There are Republicans like Mitt Romney who are reaching out to Democrats um, looking for a way forward because um, of anything. I think the most important thing that members are focusing on at this moment is to avoid another January 6th from ever being a possibility. And they look to this idea that former President Trump thought that the former Vice President Mike Pence could you know, essentially overrule certain states' electoral votes. And these senators, Democrats and Republicans, and over on the House side, members of the House as well, want to make it clear that 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 cannot happen. And so they are looking to move forward with legislation that would essentially clarify the vice president's role and Congress's role in counting the electoral votes. So that's a possibility. But in terms of, you know, a larger, more broad voting rights 
act. I have a feeling that that will, will not get done this year. And to be fair, if you look at what's in the voting rights bill, it's not just making it easier for people to get to the polls. It has campaign finance reform. It has ballot harvesting. There's just a lot in that bill that goes so far beyond the scope of what John Lewis's initial you know, voting rights bill would have done that I can't see any Republicans getting on board with it. Possibly a scaled down version of the original John Lewis bill. But aside from that, I don't see that moving forward. And in terms of build back better, because the Democrats will still have this option to move forward with budget reconciliation, which means they they only need 51. They only, I love saying only at this time when the Senate's divided 50-50, right. but they only, they, they only need 50 votes, excuse me, um, to, to move forward with the bill um, for budget reconciliation. Again, it will have to be pared down immensely to fit within Senator Manchin's essentially his demands that it not go beyond $1.7 trillion over a period of 10 years, meaning that each program that's going to be authorized would be authorized for 10 years. So, I mean, I believe that there was a study that was recently done by one of these budget groups here, uh, could have been the Congressional Budget or you know Organization, and they came out and said that just extending the child tax credit as it was for 10 years would cost nearly $1.5 trillion. So Manchin doesn't want any budget gimmicks. So that means that essentially that Build Back Better program would need to be pared down immensely. And that will take a lot of work. But you know, there's still aspects that could be adopted, but it's just not going to be as voluminous and all-encompassing as Democrats would have liked it to have been. So I'd love to go back to the voting rights question for a second, in part because that's just a topic near and dear to my heart, and in part because I think it might give me a sense of where Congress and the Senate are, where you said, you know, which is exactly true, that a lot of iterations of the voting rights plan include more than just trying to kind of reinstitute the 1965 Federal Voting Rights Act. I think because Democrats felt like this is our moment right? We have the House, we have the Senate, just by barely, we have the Oval Office. So this is our moment to try and shore up our election systems. And then you said, which I thought was so interesting, maybe a narrower type of voting rights legislation. Do you think that this Congress would pass a, you know, something that looks maybe exactly like the 1965 Voting Rights Act that was um, really gutted by the Supreme Court in Shelby County? Or I'm just curious as to where you think there might be agreement when it comes to voting rights, because it feels like such a foundational issue. And yet it feels like our elected officials are completely divided in a way that I've never seen before on it as well. Well, that's true. I think I think they are. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. If you talk to Republicans, it's because they want the individual states to have control over how you know voters go out to vote in those individual states as per the Constitution. Got to love that big C Constitution. And Democrats want to make it more, I guess you could say, fair or federalize some of these elections by making sure that um, you get a certain amount of days to vote early in every state so that it's more uniform across the board. But if you look in terms of where 
there could be room for compromise. Last year, actually, Senator Murkowski of Alaska teamed up with Joe Manchin and Dick Durbin, and they were able to come up with a compromise that sort of built on uh, you know, an earlier version that was released earlier that fall. And I don't have all the details in front of me, but essentially I think it would go back more to that 1965 voting rights bill just to make sure that the elections are fair and accessible and secure for you know voters actually going to the polls so that we don't see any sort of grandfather clauses or any poll taxes. I mean, that's initially why we had the Voting Rights Act back in the 60s. And so to make sure that states aren't passing anything that's prohibitive like that, but again, this will require work on the part of enough Republicans who can get on board because for so long, the Voting Rights Act, I mean, reinstating it and voting to extend it has really not been that controversial until, as you said, the, the Supreme Court weighed in on it, at which point Republicans kind of, you know, did not necessarily go for reauthorizing it every year. And it gets kind of frustrating because then there's a question as to, well, wait, if voting rights are fair, well, then where's the rub here? So I think that moving forward, I think there are Republicans looking to work with Democrats on this issue. I think that um, getting Republicans who have a, a lot of Native Americans in their state, because part of the Murkowski Mansion Durban compromise included Native American voting rights that have long been an issue for various um Native American tribes trying to, to get to the polls and make it easier and accessible for them to vote. So if you can get senators like John Thune on board, that's important. But again, a larger, more broad voting rights and election reform bill, I just don't see that passing. Yeah, uh, I could spend another hour talking with you about voting rights and where I think it's going on the federal level, which is really nowhere and why I think we desperately need something on the federal level. But mm -hmm. I know that we need to keep moving and focus on, I think, what's to come, not just in the short term, which we talked about leading up to the midterms the next 10 months, but my view is after the midterms, it seems to me like Republicans retake the House and likely the Senate. And I'm wondering, and a similar question, what do you think can be accomplished by the Biden administration after that happens when he's really governing a divided government? Are there places where you think that compromise can be reached or will it be two years of nothing but stalemates? Well, it really depends on the Republicans who would be voted in and whether or not Kevin McCarthy is elected to be the Speaker of the House, which is a question mark at this point because he has a very divided conference. That's the challenge, I think, for whoever is the Speaker of the House, be it Nancy Pelosi, former Speaker John Boehner, possibly Kevin McCarthy, former Speaker Paul Ryan, is that the conference that they inherit essentially have been very divided and very polarized you know, within their own party. So I think that there is room to get things done. It's just a matter of the degree to which they want to get them done. And it actually depends a lot upon the degree to which the president decides to work with Republicans, because that's sort of the key here. And if he refuses to work with Republicans, then 
you know, if he listens to progressives and does not compromise, then nothing will get done, essentially. But if he's able to triangulate the way that Bill Clinton did back in the 90s, when the Republicans took over control of Congress for the first time in 40 years, and he had to essentially pivot right then and there to figure out a way to work with the Republican-controlled House and Senate, um, he did. He did it very well. And he was able to pass welfare reform and a number of other compromised measures that were able to be enacted. It's just a matter of, again, which forces the president listens to and moves with. And if he does move with the more moderates in the party who want him to succeed, and he is able to work with Republicans because, you know, you don't have to have all the Republicans because he has Democrats as well. So it's sort of an interesting chess game that the president would have to play and will have to play. And again, it really depends on who is in the Senate majority leader's position, as well as who is in the House Speaker, Speaker of the House position, and how strong that individual can be in rallying his or her own troops to support whatever the president and the leaders come up with, which can be very challenging if you look back on, I mean, for example, the banking bill, the troubled assets legislation that former President George W. Bush had to negotiate with then Speaker the first time around, Nancy Pelosi. It was very tricky. The first go round went down in flames in the House because of Republicans and Democrats. So again, I think that if the president really does want to get things done and wants to get elected to a second term, he's going to have to figure out who to appeal to, the far left or the more moderate. And again, if we go back to that press conference he just had, it's unclear who he's speaking to and who he wants to appeal to. And that's going to be the key. Well, I think that probably brings us to what has to be our last question, which is you used the words second term. And I have a whole host of questions I desperately want to ask you about, you know, Bill Clinton's ability to triangulate versus President Biden's ability to triangulate and how Congress maybe looks different and whether, you know, we're just so polarized that we should think that there's less to be achieved. But <laughs> for our first episode together, Molly, okay. I want to think about the words you just used, second term. Do you think that President Biden runs for re-election and should he? Well, I got to say this much, Jessica. I am an Article One girl and <laughs> I like to stick to my lane of Congress. No, I, <laughs> basically, I don't want to answer that question because I have no idea. However, I can't see... That's a very fair answer for somebody who's been <laughs> following Capitol Hill, which is, I mean, his signals are that he's going to run again, but I think a lot of people feel like, is he really going to run again? And is that wise for the Democratic Party? And if not, I'll ask you this, Molly, if he doesn't run, do you see somebody on Capitol Hill who you think, or a number of people who you think would be really strong contenders? I think a number of people on Capitol Hill think they would be very strong contenders, well, yes. <laughs> as witnessed by the last election, yes. when, when nearly half of the field of like 20 some odd were from Capitol Hill. But that is something that's going to be interesting to watch and to see which members of the president's party are moving towards various cabinet ministers and how much faith and trust they put in Vice President Kamala Harris, because 
really that's kind of how you can see which Democrats are sort of picking up steam is by, you know, who's getting the most backing from people on Capitol Hill. But I think that there are individuals on Capitol Hill who would likely um, want to run for president if if the current president doesn't run for re-election. But I just, I don't know, I can't imagine him not running for re-election, even though he is very old and whatnot. I I just think that once you've got one term under your belt, you want another. And I just, I think it would take a lot for him to not run. And I, I in terms of who he would actually support as his successor, I'm not sure if it would be Kamala Harris. I'm not sure if it would be a Pete Buttigieg. I think that Pete Buttigieg would be very interested, but I'm not sure if Joe Biden would would necessarily support Pete Buttigieg or if there's other Democrats around the country that he could support. Because again, I think that he will run for a re-election. Now I could be wrong and we can bring this up in, you know, a year and a half and say, ha ha, Molly, stick to Article One. And that's fine with me. But <laughs> I've been wrong before, but that's okay. That's okay. So I, I think he would run, or he will run. It is, um, as you say, somewhat addictive. You know, you win one time and then you just can't stop. And I don't mean that as a pejorative thing. It's just uh, I think he's waited his entire life to be president, and he finally is. And it would be difficult to voluntarily step away from that. And I think that's probably the place that. Molly Hooper, we have to leave it for today. So thank you for okay. passing judgment with us. <laughs> I hate passing judgment. I like explaining the judgment of others. That's why I like to stick to the reporting side. But like my own opinion, man, oof, I don't know. It's easier to cover other people's opinions. All right. You can find Molly Hooper on Twitter at Molly Hooper. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod. Thank you to our listeners. I loved having this conversation looking backwards and forwards at the Biden administration. Certainly a lot more to cover in the weeks ahead. And we wish everybody a great day. <laughs>